Welcome to the More Than a Club podcast with Marty Cuprian and Bill Lane. Welcome to More Than a Club podcast, episode nine. I'm your host, Bill Leahy, along with Coach Marty Cuprian, Youth Director here at Next Sports. We are glad to be back on the show with all of you and honored once again that you would venture into the topics surrounding youth sports, lacrosse, and team building. Special thanks to all our listeners, subscribers, and five-star review folks. We really appreciate the emails and feedback, and we'll do our best to keep up with your needs, expectations, and interests. Thanks, Bill. Today's episode is one we've been excited about for a while now. In fact, since we started the podcast. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Green today and introduce some new conversations. I think today's guest is crucial for all our listeners. Dr. Mitch Green is a renowned sports psychologist here in Philadelphia. And I think it's crucial because athletes of all ages, parents and coaches will all find value in today's show. While we have welcomed many amazing guests, most of our guests have been professional lacrosse players and coaches. But Dr. Green brings to us insights into the minds of today's young people, current high-level student athletes and parents, all of whom he works with from his mainline office here in Philly. I personally have known Mitch for a number of years, and he's worked with our team here at LaSalle, and it's been a true blessing to get to know him. So Mitch, welcome to our show. Thank you, guys. Happy to be here. And congratulations on being inducted into your high school Hall of Fame. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, I, uh, I thank you for the applause. Uh, it was a, a pleasant surprise. Um, you know, I think the thing to say about me and lacrosse is I didn't start playing till I was a junior in high school. I didn't know of lacrosse until I got into high school. But all the guys that I befriended were lacrosse players and had been playing their whole lives. I was a tennis player and a basketball player. And the spirit was it was never too late to learn to learn a new sport. Um, today I'm concerned that kids are less willing and open to trying new things. Uh, the, the coach uh, knew that I was an athlete, knew that we, they had a good team, and said, I think I could see you with a long stick in your hand and becoming one of our key defensemen. And um, I was lucky enough to join in on a wonderful team and uh, it's a lot of fun to be recognized. I will tell you this one story because you didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <clears throat> I played basketball my whole life and tennis my whole life. But if you ask me what my favorite sport memory is from being a youth, it's when I scored a goal. And it was a challenge for any defenseman to score a goal. We had a little bet going on who was going to be the first guy. And uh, I don't remember too much from my high school days, but... But that I remember. I remember that goal. I remember reaching my long stick up way up high and slapping it down, and somehow it found it, it found in the net. And really, it, it, it warms my heart. And, and frankly, working with lacrosse players, it certainly helps that I understand the game. Uh, although a lot has changed since then, fundamentally, I understand what it's like to compete on the field. And yes, and thank you. It was a lot of fun to be recognized for this great team that I was lucky enough to be a part of. Yep. Good memory. Great memory. So my first memory of our relationship is at an anxiety conference, remember? I do. So I was there as a guidance counselor, and you were there as a professional mental health psychologist. And I, do. I don't think either one of had anyone to eat lunch with. We were like the only two males there, so we, we bonded. Talk about anxiety. <laughs> I think you're very right. I think you're very right. And very quickly, we found out we had a lot in common. And then it was one of those stories where, before you know it, I had a, I had a client who was a LaSalle student, and we wound up having to interface around... Uh, you know, a shared student um, in the breast. And then we stayed in touch, I think, ever since. Yep. You're a good friend, and I'm grateful. And mm -hmm. you were a lot of help when I was working with Team USA. I didn't like running that box, but <laughs> you helped calm me down. You taught me to refocus how to be a better assistant. 
and to look at my job, I remember saying, well, it's not the offense, it's not the defense, it's so stressed out. And I said, it's such a hard job. And you said, Bill, they're all hard jobs. Yeah. Being the offensive coordinator is a hard job. Being a defensive coordinator is a hard job. Well, you embraced it, and I know you had a great time doing that. So thanks. happy to be a help. So it's great to be back with you. So let's get to it, huh? Please. All right, our first topic is usually youth sport hot topic. And um, I thought it would be interesting to talk about what we've discussed often, which is for today's young people, they seem so stressed out. And you had said to me once, Bill, that's true. And that's because there seems to almost always be something at stake for them. So could you help us better understand our, our youth topic, which is always something at stake for today's young kids? Yeah, you know, then probably not a session or two goes by without me having a conversation with a young athlete about what the stakes are for them. Because I think sometimes even they don't realize all the pressure they're putting on themselves that goes beyond whether they're going to win the game, uh, you know, get a chance to try out with the team, get recruited or not. Um, it winds up being a conversation and a laundry list gets developed um, of the things that they feel like are at stake for them. And I would say the top three most common uh, things that are at stake are not meeting expectations, embarrassment, and what I call sort of not looking good, which is sort of like embarrassment, but you know, not looking good is just getting completely beat on the defensive end, um, turning the ball over, time and time again, which again is sort of tied into not meeting expectations and embarrassment. But the kids will begin to talk, and I have this huge whiteboard in my office, and when they can get it out of their head and we can put a list on my board, it could be 10, it could be 15 things that they feel are at stake in this upcoming showcase, in this upcoming tryout, in this upcoming game. Once we get it on the board and we get it out of their head, then we can begin to try to attack it and take a look at it and see whether is it really what's at stake. And of course, the last thing I'll say about it is all those things that they feel are at stake are all tied to results. You know, everything about embarrassment or not meeting expectations are all results-based concerns. So they're already thinking about what would happen if things go poorly. And my job as a sports psych is to bring them back into the moment and try to get them to focus on some things in the moment that they can do on the field, where should you be focused? A lot of athletes don't know where they should be focused. They know where they shouldn't be focused, like on everything that's at stake. So we try to bring them back and get them refocused on the task at hand. So my perspective, tell me if I'm right or wrong here, as a coach, to avoid those three embarrassments, whatever lack of a better word, but to, they would then play safely to their strength and so I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to not look good. I want to meet people's expectations and not fail. Therefore, I will play with my strong hand the entire time. So not only would these three things not happen, I won't get cut from my club team or my youth team. And when that happens, all you do is have a one-dimensional lacrosse player. You do. And you're exactly right. They pass. They say, my coaches tell me I need to shoot more, but I'm passing. My coaches say I need to dodge more, but I'm passing. My coaches say I need to... Um, you know, show up extra early for practice, but, you know, maybe my leg is bothering me. I'm not sure I can do it because they're scared. It's fear-based. Um, you know, when you have, when you feel like there's a lot at stake and you don't know what's going to happen, that's when the mind begins to chat. And I go through, maybe we'll talk about this in a little bit. I go through the mind chatter. The mind chatter is that conversation we have with ourselves that's full of doubt and second-guessing and negativity. 
And you're exactly right, Bill, that when that mind chatter gets going, we don't play to discover what we're capable of. We don't go to try to break through barriers. We play not to look bad, not to disappoint. And, um, and the kids get frustrated with that. But the good news is we can work through it. There are ways to help these kids kind of get on top of it instead of feeling like the chatter is always on top of them. Because I was having a hard time as a coach working through it because then I had a lot of players who were one-dimensional. Yes. So I didn't have a utility infielder. I'd have nine right-handed midfielders, and I'd say, really? Like, where's your left hand? I was afraid to use it. I might get cut. And so I didn't find a place where they could be safe to grow and explore the other aspects, which involve failure and uncomfortableness. And so I'd say, well, you can't play any attack. You're not really left-handed. It's a midfielder, so why don't you just get in line with all the other right-handed? I got a lot of them. You know, I spent a lot of time talking with players about practice because I asked them, can you answer the question, what did you learn today? And that speaks to that. A lot of them can come back and they don't know what they learned today. They know that their right hand is still pretty good and they know they had to hustle back on defense. And that is the challenge. You're right. It's a challenge for coaches and it's the challenge that I have in my office, which is to get them to focus on the learning and the growing. But they're fearful. So we have to work through that piece in order for them to become a more accomplished player. You know, what did you learn today? A lot of these kids will come back and say, well, not really anything. And then I go, all right, now that's a problem. Let's talk about how we can grow. So coaches and, and parents and youth directors have to give them that space where they can go and explore and experiment and be creative, and that may look ugly or fail. That's right. And, you know, you know, parents sometimes get a bad rap, and sometimes coaches too. Sometimes it's these kids too. Sometimes they don't leave. You know, they're perfectionist in nature. I mean, these are the, a lot of the kids that I talk to and a lot of kids um, that you coach um, where they don't leave themselves enough room for failure. You know, in the, in the classroom, you know, it's easier to control kind of what goes on in the classroom than it is on the playing field. You could always study a little bit more, stay up an extra hour later, and when you're answering the questions to your geometry test, there's no one trying to scribble your answer out before you put your answer down. Um, or, or hundreds of parents screaming at you. Or anybody screaming at you. And so we talk about the mindset of school you have to have a sports requires a unique mindset that appreciates the uncertainty. Um, it appreciates that the mind will overfocus on everything that's that's at stake. The less you have control over it, um, and a lot of these kids are the ones who need to be in control. They don't let themselves make the mistakes. Coach, sometimes I have plenty of coaches say, "I tell them," and we model for them, "Let it rip." Um, but you find out behind the scenes the kids are their own worst enemies and that's where you know i get a knock at the door yeah we would give them some space to go next five minute drill you won't hear a word from coach as long as it's within reason go play just yeah. go play go have fun yeah. try things that are new yeah and i loved watching your guys because i know they would they would immediately go down and do some push-ups when something an errant pass or a turnover it didn't feel but it felt that was we'll get to it but that was part of the culture it didn't feel punitive. I think it just made them feel like, okay, give them a chance to reset. Um, and I think that, you know, you certainly modeled that for your players. Yeah, it wasn't punitive. We'll get into that. But <laughs> it was a mindfulness, which is our next topic. Yep. And, uh, yeah, we're off to an awesome start. So a little bit more focus for coaches, uh, just the word mindfulness and the concept of mindfulness in sports. What is that? How do we practice it in sports, in school, in life? Yeah, mindfulness gets thrown around a lot these days, and 
if you ask 10 psychologists or 10 people what they think mindfulness is, everyone has kind of their own definition or their own image of it. But it's basically everyone would agree it's sort of being present, being focused in the present moment, being aware of what's going on where you are, having your head be where your feet are. You know, if you're, and that, that's present moment awareness. And everything that I've kind of alluded to so far, what often happens with young athletes and not so young athletes is understandably our minds get focused on the outcomes of the game, the outcomes of the practice, the outcomes of the tryouts. And it makes it very difficult to be mindful um, because you're already thinking 10 steps ahead about what possibly could go wrong. One of the ways we combat that very briefly, and we can talk about it more if you'd like, is we try to get them to focus on some what I call sub-goals. You know, the big goal may be to try to win. The big goal may be to try to get recruited. The big goal may be to impress at the showcase. But, but a lot of those outcomes are out of your direct control. You can't directly control whether you're going to score four goals and get three assists. You can't directly control if you're going to make 10 saves or not. If you could... Everybody would score when they want to score, and everyone would save the amount they want to save. So I really drill into these kids that look at how much energy you're spending focusing on things that are actually out of your control. I don't have a problem with you wanting to score four goals. Let's talk goals, right? If I, you know, down at the Olympics, if I told people I didn't, you know, didn't care whether they won or not, they, they wouldn't come back. So I go, I'm all about you scoring. I'm all about you making saves. But the trick is you can't control it so you wind up wasting energy and making yourself more anxious. So how can we set some smaller goals? And just very briefly, in terms of sub-goals, those are goals that you want to improve on in the game. What is it, that if your coach was sitting here with you now, what is it that you'd want to, he or she would say you should be improving on? Where do you need to get better? Some of that, by the way, as Bill is alluding, is that's how we break them out of their comfort zone. And then we try to make the goals of the practice very focused and very specific, trying to bring them back into the present moment. That's outstanding just to hear more about. And I, I might need to sign up for a couple sessions Let's immediately. Do I've been doing player meetings with our middle school players. Yeah. And there's a lot of long, we ask them short-term goals, long-term goals in school, in life, in lacrosse. But it's wild to hear some of them. And um, without the sub-goals, without the building blocks to get there, or maybe the more team-focused goals. Absolutely. Or, hey, how about let's have some fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, goal setting can get a bad rap. People think it's a little bit corny and a little bit cliche. Um, but a lot of it, people really don't know how to set goals or the kinds of goals that are actually going to kind of lead them to success. And when we can get kids to write them down, when we can get kids to then give themselves some feedback about it, that's where some of that kind of learning and growth. And it brings them back into the moment just to, just to focus on that mindfulness piece of it. This idea of sub goals where I think the push-ups come in. So the idea that at a LaSalle practice stick work is the primary talent of a lacrosse player. That is, I've always said to the players, every sport has its one attribute, its one skill that is more important than, than any other skill in the game. So basketball, being, being tall and being a good shooter, that's, if, you, if you have that, you can be small and be quick and be a great dribbler. But let's not kid ourselves. If you're really tall and can also do those other needed skills, you're ahead of the curve. In football, it's speed and strength. If you're big and strong and fast, you get to the ball carrier just faster and stronger. <laughs> and lacrosse, it's stick work. Ice hockey, it's skating. You can't skate. Don't tell me about your slap shot. You can't, you can't skate. So we would take this idea of that stick work 
is the most, single most important thing that we have going for us. The better our stick work, the better our team. The better our stick work, the better our offense. The better our stick work, the better we clear. And so we would spend an awful lot of time, especially in March, kind of being mindful of how we held our stick, where we threw the ball to one another. And so we'd say, this small six-inch window, your, your buddy's not open, his stick is open, and we're going to put it right there. And so the players would say yes or no based on the pass. So if I'm the receiving person and, and the pass is at my knees, I say no or no thank you. If you throw me a strike where I barely move, we'd say yes. We would move all the way till the passes were silent, as in the ball didn't hit the plastic of your stick. We want to be that accurate. So you were positively rewarded. We'd say yes or thank you or no. And if you got a no, you, d you did a push-up. But you didn't do a push-up because you heard a no from a teammate. You should already be on your way down when the moment the ball left your stick. And what that was showing the coaches was – I'm mindful that I just threw a bad pass. And this bad pass doesn't mean it's just a bad pass. This, this bad pass blew up our offense or it made it slower. And so there was a consequence to others, meaning the team, by that simple little pass that was poor. And I'm mindful that it was bad. So don't say anything to me because I'm already doing one push-up. That's what I think I love the most. There was no conversation about it. Your guys just dropped, just dropped right away. And I, I know it was really beautiful to see. And I think that's probably a big part of what you could say some of the success of LSL was, right? That guys developed that stick work. You didn't just – and that it wasn't just hoping their stick work would get better. You trained it and you, and you isolated it. And um, uh, I don't think coaches do that enough. I don't think they spend enough time on some of these small pieces um, from what I see. Um, just with that, I mean, wh what else do you have quickly for coaches that maybe from being in your office and talking to those kids on the other side of the desk, it sounds like coaches aren't giving them enough of or is a, a frequent issue or two? Well, look, you're talking to a sports psychologist. So what I think coaches don't do enough of is, is incorporate. Everyone agrees how mental the game is, but they don't spend enough time training it. Um, so that would be the first thing I would say to coaches. You know... And you, if, you, if you don't make it a priority as part of your practice sessions or bringing someone in um, or developing some of these mental skills for your players. Um, and for yourself, right? And as you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking I, I might be, not be doing enough. Well, you know, coaches need coaches too. Um, you're right. Um, uh, so my, one of my biggest frustrations is coaches will acknowledge immediately that it's, the game is as much mental if not more so than physical, by the time they show up on game day, the training's been done, all the practices are over. It's all about how well we can lock in. But there's not really a lot of teaching and coaching around that. And frankly, there's a lot of really great stuff out there that's you can go online and find. And we, I can make some recommendations at the end um, uh, to, to work on this. The biggest complaint I hear is we don't have enough time. And, you know, I'm going to say you can't afford not to make time this and I think you really send the message to the kids that uh, if you're not going to incorporate it then it's really not a priority um, and if it's not a priority then I don't think some of these pieces of the puzzle that we're talking about today can't flourish. In terms of time Doc, it doesn't have to be a lot of time. Our guys at LaSalle would fully dressed in the locker room, run out to practice, and we had kind of a bowl as a practice field. You were 20, 30 feet above looking down, and we'd have them stop and just be mindful for a moment of the beautiful sky, of the gifts they were given, of their teammates already down there getting ready. And each guy seemed to have one word. We asked them to come up with one centering word, which really came from the New Zealand All Blacks. Um, and my word was May. I'm not going to get worried about March and April. I'm going to be worried about May. 
um, I'll get there. May will, co will, will come when it's ready. And today we're just going to go do a good job on March 13th or March 25th. And guys really liked it. I mean, some guys liked it more than others, but it was a yeah. centering moment where we granted them you know, 30 seconds to stand at a high perch and look out over, over the field and mentally prepare themselves to play lacrosse. You know, the other tool is just writing in some kind of journal. We brought to LaSalle these small little index books. It takes two minutes in the f before practice, two minutes after practice. If you as a coach can't afford four minutes, you know, then we have to talk because you want these kids to get better. You want them to focus. But they have so much going on in their heads, these kids, <laughs> these days, right? It's hard for them to focus. And so give them a, an opportunity right before practice and maybe right after practice to give themselves a little feedback on how they did in terms of, let's say, meeting their goals. You know, some kids, so, so let me leave it at that. So there's time, as you're saying, Bill, there's some small ways they don't have to be, you're not reinventing the wheel here, that you can incorporate the mental game into your program. And But the hard part, Coop, as you're saying, is sometimes coaches, you know, they need to maybe also set some goals before practice and kind of and kind of give themselves some feedback afterwards. They need to be able to practice what they're preaching. Absolutely. I went to a mindfulness training or two as a teacher when I worked in a lower school at Episcopal, but um, I certainly have some coaches on staff that I'm sure would love to learn more about being mindful and, you know, uh, everything you're talking about. So we'll keep talking here. So we'll move on now to our cultural building segment, how to be a good teammate. Coach Leahy has worked a lot with Dr. Mitch Green, and we're going to hear about that now. Well, as we said before, it was a great pleasure to kind of walk in to LaSalle and have each one of these kids look me and my partner, Dr. Aaron Sturba, in, in the eye. Um, and um, we met initially with the Leadership Council. Uh, Coach Leahy and I agreed that that would be the best place to start to kind of find out from those guys what was important to them for this season. And remember, every season is brand new. You got a new group in, and they had to define the goals for this upcoming, for their upcoming season. Um, we went through with them and then with the entire group what the strengths, what they felt like the team strengths were. Everyone kind of had a chance to write down on an index card privately by themselves. Then we had it on the huge whiteboard. We kind of wrote down everyone's answers, and then we boiled it down to their work ethic and toughness being what they considered their team strength, their meanness and scrappiness, meanness in quotes and scrappiness and their selflessness. Um, then, of course, we went through the kinds of things that they wanted to work on, and this team felt like uh, they were becoming too complacent. Coach Leahy felt that one of his concerns was their complacency against uh, less competitive teams, and that this team was going to kind of feel like they were going to just turn on the light switch when the going got tough, and Coach Leahy sort of saw a potential problem coming down the road. Um, for me and for Dr. Sturber, it led to some really interesting conversations with the guys about even the guys on the sidelines who are not playing, when the game is sort of kind of flat and not going in their favor, how much the energy just gets sucked out of the building, so to speak, how nobody is really sort of stepping up and accountable to bringing the guys back into focus. And they all agreed that really they all kind of got down, they all got complacent. And we really said that if this is a selfless team, whether you're on the sidelines or you're on the field, everybody needs to take a hand in trying to get the guys back up, pumped up, refocused, and I felt like they really kind of bought into that. Um, Coach Lay, you want to talk a little bit about that injury piece that came up because that was something that surprised you and led to a real interesting conversation. Yeah, thanks. Well, one, it was hard. It was hard to listen to the players talk about the program 
which was like my program, <laughs> and and have not complaints but concerns of things they they wanted different. So it's to be vulnerable and sit there and to keep my mouth shut and to let you, Doc, lead the way, especially times where I'm like, that is so not true. <laughs> like, yeah. You cannot be yes. saying that. Yes. And yet more than one of them you know, was saying that. And yes, one was the injury piece. They were, I had no idea that they were questioning each other's injuries. So if a guy was injured and he didn't go through the tough run on Saturday, the other guys were like, really? Well, you know, I'm hurt. I'm playing. So it led us to a protocol, which I think I've discussed before on the show, but the idea that each guy would put his name on the board, see the team trainer first, and then if needed be outside um, medical professionals, and then address the team just on a need to know, not outside of anybody's privacy, just saying, my knee's beat up, I've seen three professionals, I'm going to be out for three days. And he put his name on the board. And it was amazing because instead of them questioning each other, they actually now were cheering for each other. They felt empowered, they felt informed, and they say, I hope you're back on Friday. You said three days, how's it feeling? Instead of, yeah, we ran so hard yesterday and you were nowhere to be found. It looks like you're fine in the hallway. So that was a really interesting point that came up from the guys that I never, ever would have thought of. And um, your vulnerability, being willing as a coach to be vulnerable in front of your players, really sets the tone for them to be open and vulnerable as well. And I really think I saw that with your team, Bill, which is um, you had to be able to hear the tough stuff that sometimes coaches don't want to hear. But you trusted that, you know, in conversation, you guys were going to figure out a solution. I know that was true even in your last season in terms of the guys, um, in terms of Saturday practices, you had told me, and kind of they wanted it one way and coaches maybe want another way. But you were willing to kind of be open and, and let them, you know, because, you know, feel like they have, a, you know, a say in all of this. And, um, and I think that vulnerability anyway, just to come back to that, is what you modeled and is what we try to help create there at LaSalle in terms of the kind of culture they were building. You probably don't remember this. One of the, my favorite insights from you and Aaron was when you were asking how we evaluated ourselves on success versus failure. And, of course, the coaches and the players said, well, by wins and losses. And then you said, boy, that's not happening anymore. Most people, you have evaluate themselves based on their blueprint. And we had a blueprint and so that the team had designed. And so you pointed out that evaluating ourselves based on our blueprint, what we hope to be, was more important than the wins and losses. So we might have lost. However, we lived up to the blueprint. We played great. The other team was just better. Or the Mannheim Township State Championship, the game, the goalie was amazing. So we didn't play a bad lacrosse game. We didn't play a great lacrosse game, but the goalie was amazing for, the, for Mannheim. And so we lived up to the blueprint, but we lost the state championship. That stunk, but it reframed how we saw the outing. And likewise, the opposite. We might win a game, but we didn't live up to the blueprint. We, didn't, we weren't LaSalle lacrosse. We didn't honor the four DNA principles. We didn't honor the non-negotiables, but we won. And so we started to, to win and in the blueprint and win in the locker room and win on the scoreboard, and that feels great versus just winning but playing poorly. Yeah, I mean, there you go. Talk about attention, focus, and goal setting. You just described it all in a nutshell. All right, so rolling into our guest roundtable today. Uh, again, we have Dr. Mitch Green with us. Uh, Mitch, can you give us a little bit more on your background, you know, where you grew up, where you went to school, getting into sports, family, and uh, we'll, we'll get to the career after that. Yes, yeah, so I am, um, I'm a New Yorker. Uh, I was uh, born and raised in New York, um, and uh, I went off to Boston College as undergrad, and then I did my PhD in clinical psych at Temple here in Philly. That's what brought me here to Philly. Okay. I've got three kids. I have got two in college. I have twins in college and one heading off to college next year. And um, 
you know, I have one that's a college athlete and I have the other who was interested in being a college athlete until she wasn't and realized that um, even though her twin was going one direction, she didn't think it was worth pursuing and really made a, an informed, mature choice that she knew she wanted college to be about something different than just, you know, sort of circling in around her sport. Um, what got me into sports psych? Can I move to that? Um, I'm not sure the rest of my history is that interesting. But what got me into sports psych was, well, I was always an athlete and always interested in sports. And when I was in grad school, um, I still was following my New York sports. And uh, there was a player, Chuck Knobloch, who played for the New York Yankees at that time in the early 90s. And some people may have heard his name because Knobloch went from being an MVP in the league to being out of the league several years later because he couldn't throw the ball accurately from second base to first. He wound up resorting to underhanding the ball to first base to ensure it arrived where it was when it was when and where it was supposed to arrive. And to me, it was fascinating. It was a clear mental block that was unexplainable. A guy who was otherwise a great player in great shape. Something obviously was happening. People may know Steve Sachs, uh, Mackie Sass, or some other players. I, uh, I never forgot that experience. And uh, there was a period of time in my practice where I had this opportunity to make a decision about where I wanted my practice to go. At that point, I was a full-time clinician, not doing any sports, and I decided to go for it. I didn't have confidence, but I had a lot of courage, which is something I talk to my players about now, and I decided to start from nowhere. And um, I'm happy to say that I did, and uh, love the work I'm doing now, sort of 15 or so years later. Pretty much most of my clientele are athletes of one sort or another. So can you talk a little bit more about your clients in general or maybe the themes they bring to the table? Yeah, the clients range from, you know, uh, mostly the high school age through college players, some elite and pro players as well, uh, in every sport, from lacrosse to figure skating, from curler, from Olympic curlers uh, to Olympic triathletes, um, and everyone in between. I love what I do, and if I'm not that familiar with the sport, people are happy to teach me. You know, I have fencers in, and I don't know much about fencing. I go watch YouTube videos. They tell me the rules, and we begin to kind of address the mental game. But most of the people that I see and we see at my practice at Green Psych Sports Psychology are high performers, we would say. These are young men and women who are looking to get to that next level, whatever that next level is. It could be making varsity. It could be getting recruited. Um, it could be making the pros um, or getting into the Olympic Games. Um, the big themes that I see are a lot of self-doubt, um, lack of confidence, um, and uh, fear of failure, I guess, if I had to boil it down to the top three. So the idea of confidence has come up in a number of your comments, which rolls into mind chatter. Could you talk a little bit more about mind chatter with your clients? Yeah, I define mind chatter with my clients as that conversation that they have with themselves, and they all know what I'm talking about. That could be full of doubt, second-guessing, and negativity. And if I say, hey, you know what I'm talking about? You know, their hands are raised. And I like giving it a name. You know, instead of talking about me being nervous or me being just a worried athlete or even calling it anxiety, we call it mind chatter. And every athlete at every level of sport and coach has mind chatter. And we go through the conditions under which mind chatter shows up. It feels a little bit like to them they're in a classroom for a period of time. And I kind of apologize to them but I really feel I have to teach them about how to be competitors. I have great players, but they don't often know how to compete. And one way to get 
the most out of themselves is to figure out how to kind of get on top of their mind chatter. Very briefly, then mind chatter shows up under two conditions, when there's a lot of uncertainty and when there's something at stake. So you're watching Netflix in your bed, not a lot of mind chatter. A random Tuesday practice, not a lot of mind chatter. Game day against the big team in a big final, showcase time, we have the conditions under which mind chatter will show up. We have a lot of uncertainty. Who knows what's going to happen? And as I referenced early in the podcast, everything feels like it's at stake. So the process of unpacking that eventually leads to us talking about, about how not to be afraid of having chatter, how to actually understand why it shows up. And just because you have a lot of mind chatter doesn't mean you're not going to play well. But what we do is we, we, we make room for chatter. This is a very mindful approach, very Eastern approach, very Zen approach. Instead of being like, I have these thoughts, I have to get rid of them and replace them. No, no, no. We're going to allow ourselves to have chatter. We're going to, in some ways, get to the point where we're going to thank it for sharing. That's how good we're going to get at being able to manage doubts and second-guessing and negativity, where we, we, we sort of consider it fake news, but we know it's going to show up, and we uh, let it come. We let it be, if, it lets, if we let it be, it will let us be. What you resist will persist, and what you let be will let you be. So we turn this whole conversation about doubts and second-guessing on its head, and we begin to not fight with ourselves as much as we fight with ourselves as athletes. Um, we get to predict that mind chatter will come. We don't make it the enemy. Um, we change our relationship to it. And then that's sort of step one. And then step two, briefly, is that's when we need to shift our focus to something like our goals, right? We obviously know that we don't want to be sitting there thinking about chatter, but how do we then let chatter do its thing, thank it for sharing, and shift into something that's actually under their control, that they want to accomplish in the current practice showcase. They go, well, I just want to play well. I go, that's not good enough. Everybody wants to play well. There's nothing special about wanting to play well. Who, uh, if you didn't want to play well, okay, then I would be more <laughs> concerned. But the fact that you want to play then well, have to me, from my sports psychology chair, and I'd be a little sarcastic with them and joking with them, I go, that's boring. I'm bored. So we begin to try to come up with some things that we could really wrap their heads around, they could really set as goals, and learn then that doubts and second guessing are all part of the part of the picture. So if that makes sense, that's kind of a quick synopsis on how we would approach co confidence issues. By the way, oh, just to finish, Bill. So in that respect, they don't need to be confident. Hmm. Confidence is overrated. You don't need to be confident to play well. You need to be focused. I'll take a focused athlete over a confident athlete if I had the choice, and that leads to me to wind up talking to them about being courageous. Boy, I thought for sure you were going to talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, bossing it off, don't let the chatter get running, and he said the exact opposite. This is a different approach than what's typical. A lot of times by people that get in my office, they've already tried that. I've tried, to, I've tried to boss it back. I've tried to replace my negative statements with positive statements. They've already been through the point where it doesn't work. Hmm. And this approach, I'm happy to say, I feel like is, has changed the direction of a lot of kids' uh, development in terms of, and I don't say that egotistically, I say that very proudly, that it's really been exciting to watch uh, these kids who no longer feel like a coward or a wimp because they go into a game worried about 
what might go wrong or whether he or she is better than he, than he or she is. And I pull as many examples as I can from pro sports, from college sports. I'm constantly surfing, stealing, and quotes from people to get them to see that even the best of the best. You know, Rafa Nadal just recently talked about, and I posted it online, you know how doubts, I can't remember the exact quote, but his idea was I'm not afraid, something about I'm not afraid of the doubts. It was on 60 Minutes. People can go back and watch the 60 Minutes of Nadal. He goes, I'm not, I have doubts all the time. I'm not afraid of them. They help me. They remind me about how hard I need to work. They remind me that I need to get better, um, just as an example. Um, but we begin to talk about how to be courageous. Courage over confidence is what we wind up talking about because you can't be courageous except in the presence of fear. So all of a sudden, we talk about being fearful as an opportunity to be courageous. Now we've just really sort of changed the game for them. Not about, oh my gosh, what could go wrong, but now it's an opportunity to me to be courageous. What does courageous mean? We kind of define that for every kid in their own way. What does that look like? We talk about climbing Mount Everest. They're not confident. They're courageous. Martin Luther King, who we, who we celebrated uh, just recently, I'm not sure he was that confident getting up in front of a crowd of people who didn't want to hear his message, who didn't believe, but we would certainly say he goes down as one of the most courageous people in history. Um, uh, it's courage that they need, not confidence, just to tie that in a bow, right? I could see you guys looking at me. It's an intriguing <laughs> concept. They get themselves fired up around this. We begin to define it. We begin to write it down, um, and we begin to b make it a kind of one of their mantras that they go in thinking about, this is an opportunity for me to be courageous. Confidence will come and go. Confidence comes after you play well. You play well, now you're confident. Hey, I'm not and then I want to get out of your way, right? You guys know the player. I'm out of your way. But the kids who wind up in my office, they're at the point where they're not feeling so confident and think there's something wrong with them and that they need to be confident, and that leads into this conversation. That's why I love you, Doc. I'm about to levitate over here. That was yeah. like deep, I don't have spiritual. any more room on my notes. <laughs> I'm writing down everything. Like, uh, thank you for sharing. You know, thank you for sharing. I definitely need to ask you more about sure. um, if you can give me just what that means. Ah, great. And, and what, last, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you were you were spitting out, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> some really awesome phrases there that I need to learn more about. And thank you for sharing. It makes it clear that when you show up, let's say to the showcase, you don't show up alone. Coop shows up, and so does Coop's mind chatter. And while Coop is going to the to the showcase, trying to play well. Um, trying to be a great teammate, uh, trying to execute the game plan or making sure his passes are sharp. Mind Chatter ha has a wholly different agenda than Coop. Okay. Because there's uncertainty and there's a lot at stake, it's focused on what could go wrong, what happens if you drop another ball. It's cold. It's cold. Somebody what if else hit, is having a good day. What if your day? hit backs up? And we, we, we get them to see that, that – they have their agenda, and Mind Chatter has its agenda, and it will show up. And that when it shows up, instead of being, oh, my God, here it is, we th acknowledge it and thank it for sharing is sort of an ex – we welcome it to the party, thank it for sharing, um, is this idea that we, we knew it was going to come up, we know what it's all about, um, and we're not going to give it as much time as it wants because we have our own agenda that we're trying to focus on. It's – it, does that make some sense? I love it. Okay, yeah. I love it. Somewhere in there, I think the idea of uh, noise, like outside noise to a team, is a, 
a cousin related to Mind Chatter. And so we would often have to address with our team, and I learned this from Nick Myers and Team USA, that you know, noise or chatter outside of your own mind is just as challenging to deal with. And so we would have the guys identify what, what is noise. Noise are rankings from some well-meaning guy having coffee in the morning who's making his own rankings. It's noise. So if you get caught up in that, listening to that, it's, that's not part of the 40 men taking this journey. So is y- your dad, who you love, getting in the car and breaking down your coaches? Like, do you have the loving confidence to say, Dad, I love you, but that's a journey that my teammates and I are taking. I appreciate your comments, but that's just noise. You wouldn't say that to your dad, but he, that's in your mind, that's, that's noise. It's really what matters is the 40 of us who know the story, who know what we're trying to accomplish every day on the field. We know our struggles, our vulnerabilities, our fears, what we're good at, what not good at. Everything on the outside is just noise. Any thoughts on yeah, outside I mean, chatter? I, I agree. I, we call it, just, you know, I just refer to it as distractions and that whether there's internal distractions like the chatter or external distractions, who's sitting in the stands, what coaches are on the sidelines. Um, that's why I was saying sort of the best athletes are the ones who can focus, not necessarily the ones who are the most confident. Um, so, yes, I try to get them to, to talk, first of all, about it. Sometimes that's the best therapy for them is just to acknowledge it, that dad is a distraction or mom is a distraction. Um, not to get on to parents, um, but we can go there. Um, and sometimes that could lead to a conversation the parents don't even realize that they're a distraction. And in some cases, the kid has to just figure out how to deal with it. And in some cases, we can bring a parent in or we can encourage the kid to have a conversation with mom or dad and let them know, I love you. And I also would think that maybe you don't need to show up to, you know, to the game. You don't necessarily need to show up because I feel like maybe it's getting in the way of me being able to perform. There's a fine line there between excuse making and responsibility, which I'm not sure we can completely unpack. Um, but my point is if I can encourage a youngster to have a conversation with some of those, dist- let's say, parents here in terms of what are distractions, sometimes that's the solution, and sometimes we just need to say, let's have a distraction plan. Because it's not about not being distracted. It's about noticing that you get distracted, and what do you want to come back to in a very mindful, by the way, approach. When we talk about mindful meditation, it's not about not being distracted. It's about this being distracted and how quickly can you bring yourself back to center. So you might notice dad and his expression or mom and her expression in the stands. That's not the problem, per se. The problem is what do you need to come back to and focus? And a lot of kids, understandably, don't know. I don't know. I should just focus on, like, running. And it's like, maybe not just that. Again, that comes back to what, what are your goals for this practice? What are your goals for this showcase? Where is it that you want to focus? So, yes. Distractions internal, distractions external. We're making it sound, it gets complicated, right? For some kids, it gets really complicated. I have some people go, what would you need a sports psychologist for? You just roll the ball out and go kick some butt, right? And then there, for some kids, that gets really complicated as we're kind of alluding to today. It's just not as easy as it looks. Who else uses sports psychologists? How many coaches do you work with? Do you have parents that contact you for just their own needs? Well, I think the best way for me to answer that is right now we're seeing a real big change going on across the board in sports. Professional sports teams, all the major league baseball teams, um, most of now the NBA basketball teams, um, and other sports, hockey, are beginning to incorporate or have already incorporated sports psychologists 
onto their staffs. And some of that's to focus on performance, and some of that, by the way, is to focus on mental health. And that's probably been one of the biggest changes happening. Um, Division I schools, NCA Division I schools right now, um, are not mandated to have clinical sports psychologists on staff, but many of them have already started bringing them on because they recognize the needs of, for athletes. And when I first met with you, that's one of the things that I expressed concern about just from the club side of things, that we do at Next, that we know our kids really well. We have these you know, very important in relationships with the players and their families, um, and we have concerns at times, but we need professional help or you know, we need to point them in the right direction to get what they need if we can't provide it. Well, I think that's what I think is, you guys are so open-minded here, the fact that coaches can't be all things to all people, and coaches, I have the utmost respect because you guys are being asked, and gals are being asked to do so much for these kids. Um, so having someone like a sports psychologist on the outside to talk to parents, talk to the team, and perhaps meet with some players, I think it's slowly changing. I think sports psychology, you know, the word psychologist sometimes scares people, and I have to continue to work against that stigma that that means there has to be something wrong with you. Of course, that's not the case. Um, uh, but now, no, I'm getting, I get lots of coaches asking me for support, advice, tips um, for themselves sometimes, for their players, for their teams. Um, and more and more parents are saying, hey, you know, I, I know they, they need someone who understands the sport world, understands that you don't want to just tell a kid who's been playing lacrosse their whole life well why don't you just quit if it's stressing you out sometimes sometimes leaving the sport is the thing to do but if the fact that someone like a sports psychologist has familiarity with the sport they understand there's a it gets pretty complicated just to sort of stop playing right when your identity and a lot of things are kind of tied up into your sports so having an expert in sport and a psychologist can be a wonderful asset to, to players coaches and teams Two last quick questions. One, what was it like to be at the Olympics? Yeah. The best athletes in the world. It was really exciting, and you can really feel when you're around some of the arenas from – I was with a, uh, an American triathlete named Joe Malloy, who um, I had uh, the opportunity to just sort of be on the journey with him to, to make the Olympic team. Um, uh, you know, he lived with his competitors, other people who were also vying for a spot. I mean, talk about a head game. You know, sacrificed so much to make it. Um, and then, you know, made the team and was the top American, which was which was a win sort of for him in many ways. Um, it was an absolute thrill to be there and just to see the best of the best. Um, but you could feel the tension in the air. You could, uh, from talking to some of the athletes or talking to athletes who were talking, tell me stories of other athletes, you talk about mind chatter. Talk about feeling like there's a lot at stake, right? You got USA across your chest. You've kind of given up a lot. You've invested a lot, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, and uh, these Olympic Games were really good reference points for my athletes to say, they're as nervous as anybody could be. They're as worried about things that are going wrong as anybody could be. And so, but just being there, it was in Brazil, in Rio, and having the opportunity to watch the best of the best was, um, was unforgettable. I have some people vying for Tokyo um, in different sports. Um, and uh, uh, who knows? Maybe I can wind up there as well. We'll see. And they go through similar emotions, fears, and chatter as the ten-year-old at the next showcase, right? You know what they do? They they really do. And I know it might be hard to believe. Yet these big, strong, hulking men and 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 strong, hulking women and beautiful athletes, um, but they're people, and they have doubts 
like anybody else. They, um, they struggle to find balance like others. And frankly, it's a lonely pursuit. You know, others have said, other sports psychologists have said, but I agree, <coughs> that if you really knew everything that was going on behind the scenes with all these elite and Olympic athletes, you might not even want your son or daughter to, to become an elite or an Olympic athlete just because for many, now of course not for all, the lifestyle is, is really tough. It's really difficult and, um, and really stressful. And so I have the utmost respect for them because they're going for it um, and they don't know what's going to happen and they don't know what, you know. Um, but you're right. They're not as different from a 10-year-old who's afraid of what could go, what's going to go wrong as, as you might think. Now, do you have any recruiting advice from the mental health field? Uh, so many of our families are involved in the recruiting process. So I know you work with athletes who are being recruited. Any quick thoughts as we wrap up? I get um, a lot of kids coming in and parents coming in. Uh, I tend to work more with these kids because I know they're the ones on the front lines. One of the distinctions I make for them is going into these recruiting trips or showcase events, um, and I make the distinction between prove versus improve. And in terms of mindset, their mindset going into it, as an athlete, if you go into a, a showcase or into a recruiting trip, too much focused on trying to prove, there's increased pressure, there's increased expectations, and every mistake becomes a, a, a major problem. I try to get them to shift, and this is frankly, you talked about Olympians before, and this is something that we do with our Olympians, is we try to get them actually in those moments to focus on improving. Um, even though we know they're going in there and they want to show off and they feel like that's what they need to do, that, as you guys know, begins to set down a, a series of tumbling events where the pressure gets too big and one mistake leads to three and one ground, missed ground ball leads to four. So we talk about where is it that they want to improve. Um, and parents need to be careful about how they talk to their kids about these upcoming recruiting-type trips. Um, uh, making sure they're not inadvertently kind of sending messages that you have to go out there and try to prove yourself, but asking them to kind of just continue to be themselves and, and ask them and help them see that they want to go into this with the idea that maybe just sort of focus on a couple small things that you want to do well and you want to improve on instead of, instead of going in there thinking you want to kill it. I think the other thing about recruiting in general is it is all about fit. I know you guys see and I, and I see because so-and-so got recruited to a particular team, the kid thinks that he maybe or she maybe needs to kind of go to that school because it's got a big name associated with it. It's, uh, it's in a certain division. Um, and I think parents um, really need to try to take a step back and see where is going to be the best fit for their kids. And the last thing I'll say about that, because Coop, we were talking about that, you can't ignore the academics in these schools. Just because, as I mentioned to Coop, I had a young man in this morning. I've had young men and women in frequently who go and play lacrosse at certain schools, really ignoring the fact that the caliber of the school and the academic requirements of the school are as serious and significant as the lacrosse requirements of the school. And these kids, in some cases, obviously, are just not prepared. And if you're really not prepared, you start missing class, you sort of know what happens. These kids may love their team, love their teammates, love their coaches, but it doesn't work out for them because nobody really sort of focused and thought about the whole big picture about the school. And so, Take that academic piece seriously. Take a look at your child and be honest. And for the kids out there, take a good look at yourselves. How are you performing in high school? It's rare where kids will just flip a switch 
if they really haven't learned study skills in high school, if parents are really writing those papers uh, their senior year to get them through, um, I do worry that parents just are going to push them through and just hope it works out. And again, in my job, I don't see, I see the kids where things have sort of fallen apart. So take the academics of those recruiting trips as seriously as you do the, per the performance piece of it. Great advice, Coach. Outstanding. Our last section is rapid fire. I love our rapid fire segment where we're going to ask you quickly under a shot clock for some last uh, thoughts for players, for coaches, and for parents. So you ready to do this under a 15-second shot clock? Let's do it. All right. Quick homework assignment from Dr. Green for a player listening. Writing down your goals before practice, looking back, taking two minutes after practice, and seeing, giving yourself a, a rating on how well you were able to hit them. If not, what do you need to improve on? Now you know your goal for the next practice. For parents. The car ride home is not the time to talk about the game or the practice. It's too close quarters. As one kid called it, he called it hell on wheels. Um, <laughs> the car should be a retreat. Um, it's their sport. Let the kid bring it to you when the time comes if you want to talk about it with him or her, if you need to talk about it with him or her, but don't make the car ride home the time and the place. Now look, if the kid brings it to you and they want to talk about what happened, and of course after a big win or a great practice, let it rip. Um, but particularly after the frustrating moments, shut it down in the car. Talk about where you're going for dinner and what the night's going to look like and leave it at that. Homework for coaches who are listening? Yeah, if you want to be a team that has as much mental toughness uh, as they do physical toughness, then don't just talk about it. Begin to find ways to incorporate it into your practices, as we talked about today, into your game planning, into a blueprint that you could establish. Reach out um, to me. Reach out online. There's a lot of resources out there for coaches to uh, find ways to bring in, uh, as we talked about, in simple, not too time-consuming ways, um, the mental game into, into their lacrosse practices. And lastly, what are you reading or listening to these days? You know, I actually had a graduate student who interned with me, gave me a copy of a book called The Confidence Gap uh, by Russ Harris. Um, it, I, he knew I'd like it because it's a similar type approach where um, the idea is you don't need to be confident um, in order to be successful. Um, I really love the book by Apollo Ono, uh, who's a speed skater one of the most decorated Winter Olympians. He wrote a book called Zero Regrets. Um, I love it. It's an easy read. He goes through a little bit of personal history or a lot of personal history, how he got where he was with a very authoritarian father. But he also lays out a lot of his mental approach, which I thought just was spot on and I thought are things that people could steal and take. And then the last is an oldie but a goodie called The Inner Game of Tennis. Uh, Pete Carroll of the Seattle Seahawks is one of the biggest proponents of this book, you'd think, well, I don't play tennis, but it's about tennis, but it's really not about tennis. It's about um, m managing the mind, about focusing, um, uh, about coaching, um, about uh, how not to over-talk and over-communicate over to your players. Um, those would be some of my top recommendations. Thanks, Doc. All great recommendations. It was great to have you with us today. Man, thank you, Dr. Green. You gave us so many valuable nuggets to think about. For any of the parents, coaches, or players out there listening that want to learn more about Dr. Green and what he does, uh, we'll tag his information when we load the podcast in the show notes. As we approach the 2020 lacrosse season, please help us spread the word about the podcast. It really helps us if you subscribe, download, 
and it really helps us even more if you review. Pass it on to someone else that's in the youth sports world, either as a player, parent, or coach. This helps us all learn, and it helps us make the show more interesting. We look forward to having you back for episode 10, where we will get ready for our upcoming spring high school season with our guest John McAvoy from Malvern Prep. We're signing off from the Navy Yard. Thank you. Great job, Doc.